in this episode of Boss Files. We do need a new capitalism. Capitalism is dead. Uh, we need a new, more sustainable, a more equitable, uh, more fair capitalism. Salesforce founder and co-CEO Mark Benioff. He's out with a new book called Trailblazer and makes the case for business being about much more than the bottom line. He thinks billionaires like himself should pay much higher taxes and warns about the cost of growing inequality. He tells me CEOs have largely gotten a pass. Plus, he makes the case for breaking up big tech. Well, you were there in Davos at the World Economic Forum in 2019, and I said Facebook is the new cigarettes. We've talked about this before. It's addictive. It's not good for you. They're after your kids. They're running political ads that aren't true. They're giving your data to tens of thousands of organizations without your knowledge. And they're also acquiring other companies and commingling their data into theirs. And I think at that point, because they're now doing that, that they probably should be broken up. And his argument for Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, often called the Internet's most important law, to be, quote, abolished. Also, his personal journey to the C-suite, the impact his father and grandfather had on him, and the value of being vulnerable. Plus, what does he hope his kids will say about him one day? Here's my conversation with Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff. Hi, Mark. Hi, Poppy. Thank you for being here. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. Congrats on thank you. Trailblazer, the book. Thank you, thank you. We'll get into it all the way back to the 1970 Buick, I believe, <laughs> a little bit. But let's start with all the headlines you're making on capitalism. Mark, you say capitalism as we know it is dead. That's saying a lot coming from a billionaire who made his money through capitalism. So why did it die and when did it die? We do need a new capitalism. Capitalism is dead. Uh, we need a new, more sustainable, a more equitable, uh, more fair capitalism. And that means it's a capitalism built on stakeholders, not just shareholders. Uh, certainly stakeholders are as important as shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, the business approach has been only about shareholders and maximizing shareholder return. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, the business of business is business, but we're in a new world. And as the CEO of a major company, number one tech company in San Francisco, Salesforce, we are a major Fortune 500 business software provider. We have to think about more than just our bottom line. Mm -hmm. We have to think about all of our stakeholders. When did that it, means... When did it die? Well, it, I think it died when CEOs stopped thinking about all of their stakeholders. Their customers, their employees, their partners, those are all stakeholders. But in San Francisco, where I am, we're the largest tech employer in San Francisco, the homeless is a key stakeholder. Our public schools are a key stakeholder. The planet is a stakeholder. And when I'm running my business for the last 21 years and growing it, I have to have a stakeholder return, not just a shareholder return. So you're sort of throwing Milton Friedman under the bus here. You think he's at least not right for this time. Can you play this out for me? Like, what does this actually mean? Because there are quarterly earnings, and you do have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, right? I don't know if every business can do what Salesforce does and, and have this mindset and have the returns and the margins that you have. Can they? Well, we have had a fantastic shareholder return. If you bought our stock when 
we went public in 2004 to 3,500% return since then. So we've been financially very successful. But we've also had a fabulous stakeholder return. So we have given away $300 million in grants. Mm -hmm. We run 40,000 nonprofits and NGOs for free in our service. We've done 4 million hours of volunteerism. And we're a net zero company and will be fully renewable by 2025. So we've had a stakeholder return that's as incredible as our shareholder return. This is something that every company can do. What happens to companies that don't do it? Well, you can see what happens to CEOs who only think about their shareholders. When things go wrong, they have no air cover. They have no support. I think that's what's actually going on in the world. When you see CEOs being fired Mm -hmm. or big-time CEOs having a major problem, it's because... They haven't really done the right thing. They're only maximizing one number. That isn't how to build a great company. You, you want to build a great company that does great things, that mm-hmm. improves the state of the world. You know, business can be the greatest platform for change. We've done this from our first day at Salesforce. This isn't something that we tacked on. This is our culture. This is who we are. Do you think that this is why this capitalism that you have called unbridled and you've called it capitalism run amok, do you think that this is why Gallup polling just a year ago showed that when you ask Democratic voters about capitalism and socialism, in that polling, more had a positive view of socialism than capitalism. Is this why? Well, capitalism is dead. You need this new But I know capitalism. you don't think socialism is the and answer, right? I, I don't think socialism is the answer. I think that what you need is a new capitalism. I, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. You yeah, probably I read, read it. it this week because I tried to outline everything associated with the new capitalism so that everyone can understand what is it that I mean that you need to focus on a stakeholder return. By the way, the government can have a role here. They can ask companies, probably in the SEC reporting, to not only deliver uh, your numbers, but what about your stakeholder results? You know, this Looking at your stakeholder return, this is a powerful opportunity for every CEO. Okay, so let's take an example of something. We heard Elizabeth Warren say in the Democratic debate this week that we need, in her words, accountable capitalism, which sounds kind of like what you're saying. It's accountable capitalism. It says you want to have one of the giant corporations in America, then by golly, 40% of your board of directors should be elected by your employees. That'll make a difference. Does Salesforce support that? Do you want 40% of your board of directors elected by the workers? Well, actually, I don't think that's a fair and balanced approach to who my stakeholders are. I think that her concept that stakeholders need to participate mm-hmm. in the, how the company is run, well, I fully agree with that. But you can't say that 40% in that specific number um, of the employee should be represented as the employees on the board, I think it's actually quite unbalanced. Why? Because I think you have many stakeholders. You mm. know, let me give you that an That are not just the employees. That are not just the employees. And I'll give you a great example. You know at Salesforce, we are deeply committed to public education. We've given about $70 million to our local San Francisco and Oakland public schools. Mm-hmm. Every one of our senior vice presidents has to adopt a local public school wherever they are in the world. We've adopted 107 of them. And I've even adopted one, Presidio Middle School in San Francisco. Great school. We've rebuilt the playground. We've built the tech infrastructure. We built, put in the first you know, computer science curriculum. But I'll tell you what, I was actually delivering a speech introducing the new playground last week, and I'm looking into the eyes of these kids, 
And I'm saying to them, hey, we're the largest tech employer in San Francisco. Yeah. You're one of my key stakeholders. The of kids. course, I have to be here and supporting you. The local public schools are a key stakeholder. They need to be represented as part of how we run the company. The CEOs need to naturally make this motion. This can't be something after the fact. By the way, those are our employees' kids in public schools. Why is it that every CEO of every company in this country hasn't adopted a public school right now? There's a challenge for them. Okay, taxes. You not only are okay with paying more in personal taxes, you are a huge reason why Prop C passed in San Francisco, which makes the biggest companies there, a lot of big tech companies, pay more in taxes to fund solutions for homelessness and the crisis in, in, in your city. But at the same time, you have complimented and praised the president's corporate tax cuts. Why, why do the corporate tax cuts make sense while you think that personal taxes should go up to help with this big inequality gap? What do you think? Well, I think that the homeless are one of my key stakeholders. So when I look at the homeless and when I see what's happening in San Francisco, then I have no choice but to support Proposition C. But specifically, we invested $7 million. I put a huge amount of my personal time. And we got about 62% of the public vote. Um, we're still in the courts yeah. because in San Francisco, you need an even larger percentage to get that through. But that was a tremendous opportunity for me and for other businesses to come along and say, we're going to support this huge problem that we have with homelessness. And we know what it takes to get more extremely low-income housing and more homeless services into the city. It's going to take a lot more money. And we know where that money can come from, the largest employers. Who are the largest employers in San Francisco? Salesforce, Facebook, Google. You've heard of them. What, what's going to tell you that it worked, Mark? I mean, what are, what's the actual data you're looking for that if this makes it to the courts tells you, okay, Prop C worked. It was worth it to tax these companies more. Well, we can already see in programs that where we have directed funding, for example, in family homelessness, we've dramatically reduced it in San Francisco. We've taken hundreds of families, which are typically mother-led families, each with two kids, mm -hmm. off the streets and into stable housing. And we've also been able to create, surround them with social services and community efforts to get them right-sized and back into society. So we know what the programs are that work. The, uh, by the way, the key to homelessness is homes. <laughs> you know, the reason these people are, are homeless is there isn't housing for them. So you need extremely low-income housing mm -hmm. to support people who may have very serious issues, and they need that direct support. So in, in retrospect, do you think that the, that the president's tax cuts, corporate tax cuts, while helping businesses, do, have they contributed to this inequality that you're so worried about? Do you think net-net they were worth it? I think the big picture that's contributing to the inequality is a lack of a stakeholder view. I don't think it's about one specific tax program or another specific tax program. Though I certainly do not think that companies should be able to just buy back stock based on tax cuts. That's crazy. It should be go into these stakeholder programs. If we're going to end up with more cash, yeah. then it has to go back to our stakeholders. That, I think, is the key. Because what do you say to those? I'm thinking about people listening you know, in San Francisco right now, sort of living through this and seeing the homelessness crisis or living it themselves, might say, look, these guys, I can say it's mainly guys running the big tech firms, they exacerbated this inequality crisis. They made it worse. And now they want to fix it. What do you say to them? Well, I agree. 
I mean, if you can't see that who's creating the problem, it's these companies that are not necessarily jumping into a stakeholder approach. By the way, we go back to Prop C. When I went to fight for Prop C, not everybody jumped in the bandwagon to help me. Jack fact, Dorsey of, of the, Twitter, public feud. Well, a lot of CEOs, including Jack Dorsey, including others, said, no, we're not going to pay more taxes. We want tax breaks. We want tax cuts, mid-market tax cuts. We don't want to pay Prop C taxes. Leave us alone. My approach to business is different and always has been. For 21 years, I've said you have to integrate business into society. Mm. By the way, yesterday I was in Germany. I told you that. I was in Munich. That's what they do. Business is very tightly integrated into society, into the government. It's one integrated system. You know, apprenticeships, for example, how they train workers and get them you get their employment rate very, very low, and onboard also refugees, mm -hmm. is all done through an apprenticeship program. That's actually something our current administration is working sounds, and deploying here. It sounds like you're advocating for something that I think a lot of business leaders would cringe at, which is more government reach into your businesses. Do you want that? Is that good for America? I want more integration. I want, that. that's what I'm really saying. I don't want you to, as a CEO, yeah. as a company, you cannot wash your hands of how society uses your products. You cannot wash your hands of your responsibility to society. You cannot wash your hands of your responsibility to, to the public schools or to the homeless or to whoever. If you're a CEO and you wield the power of a major corporation, well, I believe that business is the greatest platform for change. And so that means that you, as a CEO, or as a leader in a company, or even you in your role, you have the opportunity to do incredible good in the world. And we all have to do that Well, good. not just the opportunity, I think, the res I mean, you're arguing, and I think for journalists, a responsibility to do, to do more. Well, that's, the, that's what my book is all about. <laughs> exactly. Which is, that's the reason that I wrote the book Trailblazer, is to show people the actual stories of how we take this responsibility and put it into action. And you talk about when it worked and when it didn't, and we'll get into all of that in a moment, but to, to sort of close the loop on the inequality issue that I've, I care so deeply about, I, I know you do, billionaires. Let's talk about being a billionaire in America. You are one. Bernie Sanders told the New York Times recently, as president of the United States, I will reduce the outrageous and grotesque and immoral level of income inequality in the U.S. He was asked if he thought billionaires should exist in the United States, and he said, quote, I hope the day comes when they don't. You're a billionaire. Should they exist? Well, I certainly think that people should pay more tax income taxes at, at higher levels. And are those tax rates fair today? I don't think they are. I think that people who are making very large amounts of money based on, you know, capital gains, like I have. 21 years ago, I started a company that was worth nothing. Today, that company is worth $130 billion. Because I own a percentage of that company, that's where my wealth comes from. I've created that wealth by creating value. You're making money off the money. Well, I actually think my values have created the value. You know, I would argue that the values that I've put into my business are where I've created the value, and that's where the wealth has come so from. So what should your wealth, your capital gains wealth, for example, be taxed at? What's fair? 50, 60, 70 percent, Mark? Well, I think you can look at the traditional tax rates, I think, actually have been quite fair. And if you look at global tax rates and where other countries tax the super rich, that's, I think, those are fair rates. So 70 percent, France? You can look at different countries. That's the most extreme. But you'd pay but it, different you're saying. Ones. Well, I think that we, ha we should have the conversation. Fair enough. 
A wealth tax. This was talked about on the debate stage quite a lot this week. Do you think a wealth tax is the solution? Elizabeth Warren says it is. Well, I'm looking for more systemic change. I'm not looking for transactional solutions. I think transactional solutions are a mistake. Hmm. Things that are surgical, I think, are, are actually inappropriate and will exacerbate the problem. I think we should be looking for ways to actually create a new capitalism. I want to have approach based on all stakeholders. That is, not only do we have shareholders at Salesforce, but we have stakeholders. My responsibility isn't just to the shareholders in the company, but to all of those stakeholders. And I would like to be able to address all of the things that we're doing for those stakeholders and how we improve the state of the world. I think that's the role of the corporation. I think that's also the role of me as an individual. I think I should also have that responsibility, whether it's, for example, in San Francisco, to our local homeless support organizations, to our children's hospitals, or uh, any other major non-governmental organization that's you know, creating uh, value in, in, in the city. On a global basis, climate change. This is probably the biggest existential threat we have. We have to reduce the amount of emissions that are in the atmosphere, and there's a lot of ways that we can do that right now. Have any of your shareholders called you freaking out about this? No, because I have said this for 21 years since really? the day we started the no. company. Papa, you can go back and look at our interviews. I know you've said it, but I'm surprised. They are consistent. <laughs> I'm surprised you have no shareholders up in arms about this. I don't have any shareholders that are up in Fair arms. Enough. They've had a 3,400% return. <laughs> By the way, our return is probably better than any other company that went public in 2004. You can take a look at that, including Google. So we've had a fantastic return. We've done a great job for our shareholders. The way we have done a great job and built a great company is through our values. Our values have created value. More from my conversation with Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff after the break. Take me back. You start the book. You talk about your father's 1970 Buick station wagon. And you talk about your grandfather a lot. You begin the book and you end the book with him. He had a profound impact on you. Well, my, my family, both my father, my grandfather, my mother, you know, they put inside me a set of values that I'm really just playing out right now. My grandfather, it's funny because we're rolling this book out, The Chronicle, which is my local newspaper, went back into their digital archives and they found photos of my grandfather in homeless shelters when he was a supervisor and working on homeless programs. And in the middle of the interview, they went, and what do you think about this? And it's very powerful for me because I remember my grandfather as a tremendous civic leader. He was a supervisor for more than a decade in the city, but he was also one of the world's most famous trial lawyers. And he was committed deeply to improving the state of the world. That was a major part of his career. And so, yes, when I used to walk down the streets of San Francisco, I write about this in the book. You know, uh, Monica, who co-wrote the book, kind of phrased it as a little parade of two. You know, this idea that he would walk down Market Street in San Francisco and he would give homeless people $20, you know, and, and this was in the early 70s. He was a supervisor in the 50s and 60s. And I remember that, and he would say to me, you always need to take care of those who are homeless and we need to look at how we're trying to reduce homelessness and make our, make our city, you know, one of the greatest, you know, examples of diversity, inclusion, and tolerance in the world, which, by the way, is what San Francisco is. It's even the, the home of Summer of Love. It's the home of gay rights. 
we have that history, we have got to make sure that we deal with our homeless too. Your father um, was so excited when you were born, you write about this, that he crossed out the middle name your mother had down for him and wrote his own in there. And you talk about learning from him, especially mm -hmm. his work ethic and his unwavering integrity. But you also write this, Mark. You say, I'm not sure I ever became the son that my father imagined that day. I think my father really wanted me to be selling women's clothing in his retail stores. Come on. And no, serious puppy. What I did on Saturdays was that Buick station wagon was filled with women's clothes, beautiful dresses and pants and blouses, and we would drive them to three, four, five, six stores, depending on how many he had around the San Francisco Bay Area, all of the cities, meeting all of the different types of people we have in, in the Bay Area, and moving stock around and transferring. And that's what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to be in that business. That's what his father did. That's what he did. Therefore, so when I came home with a computer, it was, you know, a little bit of a shock. Do you think he'd be proud today? Yes. Well, my father saw quite a bit of my success, yeah. and he was very proud. So, And I have that in my heart, and I feel that quite strongly. But along this journey, you started making a lot of money early on. Larry Ellison was your mentor. You worked at Oracle. You made a good living. And then in 1996, I believe it is, you're supposed to go to work one day. You're, you're supposed to be living the American dream. You are laying there and you say on a workday morning, frozen in place under the covers, disillusioned and deeply confused. And then you left. You sort of threw it all away and rolled the dice. Why were you miserable? Well, I'll tell you why I was miserable. I was really living two different lives. I didn't realize it at the time. In fact, that very day, I went into the office and I talked to Larry Ellison, who was my boss, and he said, take a sabbatical. I didn't know what the word meant at the time, but I did. I went away for six months. I went to India. I went to find a lot, went to a lot of incredible places in the world. And my revelation was this. I had one set of my life where I was doing all my business work, you know, building great technology sure. and selling it and marketing it, just as I was taught to do and wanted to do. And over here, I was doing philanthropic work, putting computers in schools and working on giving money away. And what I realized was I was kind of torn inside. And then I realized on a trip to India, I met with this amazing guru named Amichi and with a discussion that I was having with, between myself, her, and a friend of mine, Arjun Gupta, she said, hey, in your desire to change the world, don't forget about helping others. And all of a sudden, I saw two worlds integrating, that I could have one integrated life, that I could have a business that had a culture. Mm -hmm. Now we have words for it built on stakeholders, but that, that the business could be a platform for change. And so that's why I'm so proud of Salesforce, because we've built a company that does well and does good at the same time. Your dad told you, don't leave, that's crazy. You go out to raise money, no one on Sand Hill Road's gonna give you any money. VCs didn't take you seriously. All you, I think this was all funded through private money. Well, this is why I wrote the book Trailblazer, to really tell people the whole story. And that's a key part of it, which was when I had this vision of what Salesforce could be, I went and talked to my father first, and he said, don't do it. I mean, he was a child of the Depression. Sure. So he's like, you've got a good thing going at Oracle. Why would you quit? And then... Uh, I went to all my friends on Sand Hill Road. I had written this beautiful business plan. I had this demo, and they all said, this will never work. 
And so luckily I had a lot of actually rich friends from the software industry. That's helpful. That was very helpful because there was no other way I was gonna actually gonna make this happen. And people like Larry Ellison and other friends of mine gave me the first capital and we raised $62 million privately. Uh, we even went, got through our first recession on that money yeah. and, uh, and got public in 2004 with 100 million in revenue. And that was the start of Salesforce. One of the things that struck me reading this, and I've known you and covered you and interviewed you for years, Mark, and I have never associated you with the word vulnerable. Mm. You're towering, you're very tall. Uh, you do not seem unsure of yourself often or ever. And yet you take a moment to talk in the book about, be, about the power of vulnerability. Do more men in business and CEOs need to be more vulnerable and talk about that? Well, it's funny because we have had those conversations, but I think the words that I use maybe aren't the same words that you're using. And the words that I always use is you have to really have a beginner's mind. You have to be willing to listen. You have to be able to stop. You have to be able to like take a step back. Every morning you know that I meditate and and that is where I've built my own deep listening skills. That's also, I think, my ability to listen to my employees has really helped me. I think when we talk about vulnerability, you, you know the story where my senior female executives came to me mm -hmm. and said, Mark, you pay us less than men. Yep. That was deeply hurtful because I said, there can't be a way that I pay you less than men. By the way, I knew their salaries and they were not less than their male peers, but they were right that Salesforce in the whole paid women less than men. We corrected it, that was $10 million. We have to audit it every year. Mm -hmm. We have to um, check companies that we're about to acquire and what their pay scales are. So that vulnerability is being able to listen and also admit when you're wrong. I think this is a very important part of being successful in business. So we'll get to admitting when you were wrong in a moment and the Twitter story, because this is the first time I think people are hearing the full story around the desire to acquire Twitter. But on the issue of diversity, because we've covered that a lot, what Salesforce has done on that front for years now, when you look at your executive team, you still have fewer women on the executive team than men. I think nine men, three women. And on the board, you have 10 men, three women. Are those numbers something you want to change? Do they need to change? Those numbers have greatly improved and continue to improve. That is, we want to make sure we have on the board of directors and in our employees too, more women so that we have balanced, you know, ideally 50-50, more underrepresented minorities that represent the percentages in society and mm -hmm. or that the percentages represented to the customers that we're selling to or to all of our stakeholders. And those are things that I think about and have thought about a quite a bit. So 50-50 is the goal. And by the way, that's why we've made tremendous progress on the board and in our employees. But there is no finish line when it comes to diversity, equality, and inclusion. These are very hard things, especially in my industry. Easier yes. in other industries, by the way. And in our industry, quite difficult. And But we are making quite a bit of progress. And by focusing on something, we're going to achieve that outcome that we want. On, on the issue of diversity, you've talk, you talk very candidly in the book about the issue of race. Um, and when, when we look at African-American representation across big tech, um, it's, it's a problem, right? And you write in the book um, about the public criticism that you got hit with when you tweeted about a Black Lives Matter 
movement and moment you wrote, it took me about 15 seconds to realize that I had made a huge mistake. The general view was someone like me, a CEO in an industry plagued by a terrible record of hiring black employees, had no right to wrap himself around a movement aiming to combat racism. And you saw this tweet and it said, Salesforce, 2% African-American employees. And right now it's about 2.8%. What was that moment of vulnerability like for you? Well, I think it's when I realized that I want to be able to say what I think is right and act on what I think is right, but it's not appropriate in all cases. And instead, my action just should speak more than my words, which is right then when we made a, a position in the company where we doubled down on equality, yeah. where we made equality a core value, where we hired a chief equality officer, while we were, have worked to improve um, the number of underrepresented minorities in the company and the number of women. And uh, while we have not made as much progress as we want to make, we are making progress. We've had 22 quarters of a row of improvement in underrepresented minorities. On the women, we've improved from 28% to 35%. It's not 50-50. We're not there. But, but it takes going. time. And, you know, Salesforce is growing. This year, we're going to do about $17 billion in revenue. We gave guidance at about $16.9 billion. But we said we're going to get to $28 billion by fiscal year 23, that's only about three years from now, growth gives us great opportunity to make these changes and move these opportunities forward. And that's, but we have to be structural about it. Mm -hmm. It has to be institutionalized. We have to operationalize our values, not just articulate them. Mm. And we've been able to really do that very effectively. Twitter, for the first time, you tell the real full story from your lips to our ears about what really happened with Twitter. You were all in on buying Twitter. You thought it was the most beautiful, wonderful acquisition, and it sounds like everyone around you thought it was a horrible idea. And then you tripped. You literally tripped and fell. Take us into your mind. What happened and what did you learn? Well, I missed a step on the curb, and I don't have a meniscus because of that, and I ripped my Achilles because of that. But, you know, to me, that was a message. Uh, as I was heading into a meeting with these people who are going to give us the money through bonds sure. and credible you know, organizations, I also had blood gushing down my leg. And I would say to myself, gee, is this a sign? And I do think that way, you know, that you can hear things in your mind, you can see things, other people can say things to you, and there can be physical, your interactions with the physical world all should be how you inform your reality. You know, it should be many different ways to get a message, and that was a message that I was receiving very clearly. Are you glad Salesforce didn't buy Twitter? Well, I had such a beautiful vision for that, but, you know, as I said, I manage through all stakeholders. I am not a dictator. I'm not operating something like the Wizard of Oz, that it has to be all about me. Mm -hmm. I am operating a company through a philosophy called all stakeholders. And one of those key stakeholders is my investors, for example. And my investors were very clear that they did not want to have Twitter. Is and it off the table, Mark? Is it off the table? Yes, it's off the in table. In the future. Because, he, he, because until I would have consensus from you know, some very powerful allies of mm -hmm. mine to say, yes, let's all do it. It has to be a team. I, I can't do something. Look, Salesforce has 45 thousand employees. We're a Fortune 500 company. We're one of the most successful business software companies in the world. I can't do something by myself. I have to do it with everybody else. We have to do it together. 
What did they say? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Well, I'm about trust. Trust is my highest value. I write about that in the book. Mm -hmm. So if trust is your highest value, how do you cultivate trust? How do you bring it into well, your organization? You, can I use the words pissed off? I think I can say that on the podcast. You pissed off a lot of people in Davos in 2018 saying that. Here you are in a room talking about big tech and trust or a lack thereof. And you called out your fellow big tech leaders and said, we don't have it. It's a problem. You leave the panel. Your cell phone is ringing off the hook. And your wife, Lynn, starts calling you the regulator. Okay, number one, which is that sometimes I have permission to say things, sometimes I don't. We just talked about one where I really didn't have permission to say something and I did. Right. Here I do have permission because I'm basically talking to my peers. And what I said to them was, if trust is not the highest value in our company, then what is it? Each and every one of us can ask that question. What is the most important thing to you right now? And, of course, maybe there's other values as well. But we can look at what are all of those values. Mm -hmm. So your peers didn't like that you did that. You think that big tech got a pass for a long time. Is big tech still just getting a pass? Largely? Lack of regulation? I would say CEOs are still largely getting a pass. They, they should be much clearer on their values. What is your highest value? Is it trust? Is it customer success? Is it innovation? Is it equality? Or is it, is it power? Is it money? Or bottom line. Is it, yeah, is it bottom line? Is that your highest value? Then yeah. just be crystal clear and say, you know what? All we care about is making money, and that's who we are, and we're going to do. We're going to skirt the laws right on the edge. We'll do whatever we can. If that's what you're all about, then just be crystal clear. Who's giving but, them a pass? Who's giving CEOs a pass? Congress? The American public? I think in many ways, it's just the way that business has been set up. You know, we talked about taxes earlier, and in business school, you're told to be anti-tax if you're in business. Well, if you're in business, don't pay taxes. But, you know, what, taxes Don't pay are, any more than you need to by law. Don't, and, and not just that, but fund and advocate to get tax rates reduced when every, every, ch every chance you can. It's more than that. It's to be anti-tax. But I, I think that you can take that to an extreme. And that's really my point. My point is, is that businesses need to think about all stakeholders. And tax rates are a key part of being able to fund social services. That's the Prop C sure. story that we just talked about. Was I supposed to be anti-tax when there are 8,000 homeless people on the streets surrounding our gorgeous Salesforce tower? No. We need to be there saying we need to do something. But then should corporate tax rates be higher? What do you think, Mark? Is there a lesson learned? Like, were those corporate tax cuts worth it, or should they be higher? I, I th I'm not an expert to be able to tell you exactly what all of those tax rates should be. Yeah. But if social services or the safety net is not being funded, then tax rates need to be higher. Okay. More from my conversation with Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff after the break. Breaking up big tech. It's a popular line on the campaign trail. We heard it on the debate stage. Do you support it? Should Congress come in and break up the biggest tech companies? Should they, you know, make, uh, tr try to force Facebook, for example, to, to spin off, sell off WhatsApp and Instagram? Should Google be broken up? Should Amazon be broken up? 
Well, you were there in Davos at the World Economic Forum in 2019, and I said Facebook is the new cigarettes. We've talked about this before. It's addictive. It's not good for you. They're after your kids. They're running political ads that aren't true. They're giving your data to tens of thousands of organizations without your knowledge. And they're also acquiring other companies and commingling their data into theirs. And I think at that point, because they're now doing that, that they probably should be broken up. Because they're they're creating undue influence as the largest social media platform on the planet. Help help play that out for us. How does breaking up Facebook fix all those problems you just laid out? 72% of the American public doesn't know that Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp. And all of those services are being integrated to get a 360-degree view of you so that they're able to directly position you. If you haven't watched the movie on Netflix, The Great Hack, they talk about how Cambridge Analytica used Facebook Mm -hmm. data in partnership with Facebook. In fact, they had Facebook executives on site with them creating a target segment called the Persuadables in the 2016 election. They used Facebook to do that. So So that, by, by... fully integrating all of those services, you make Facebook more powerful. Their response, we've heard Mark Zuckerberg and leadership there say is, if you break us up, you just make us less powerful to combat, you know, all of these outside forces on uh, election interference and, 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 and what was done in the 2016 election from the Russians, etc. Is that a salient argument? No, it's not, because the, what really the narrative is, is trust is our highest priority. Why they can't say that trust is our highest value is beyond me. So Sheryl Sandberg called you after you made this statement calling Facebook a cigarette. Clearly they were not happy to hear it. Sheryl Sandberg calls you up. What did she say to you? What did you say to her? Well, I won't tell you about private conversations between me and other individuals, but I can tell you that my narrative for everyone is basically the same. I'm like a broken record. What I say to them, to a CEO is, we're in a world where very advanced technologies are at our fingertips and where we can do magical things. And that means with artificial intelligence, things happen that we didn't even know was possible. But that also means that trust must be our highest value. And you have to ask yourself, is trust your highest value? If it's not your highest value, then what is it? So when I'm talking to myself, Mm -hmm. when I'm talking to my employees, and when I am talking to others, I'm always asking them that because In regards to the technology industry, we have to get to the point where we're seeking higher levels of trust. That is is the most important thing in the tech industry today, period. I know you won't tell me about the conversation, but did you walk away from that conversation with Sheryl Sandberg thinking that they are trying to make the changes you think they need to make, or did you leave just not convinced? Well, I think they still have a long way to go, and you can see this with the current discussion about political advertising. Let's talk about the political ads. They said that they don't care if political ads on their network are accurate, and they don't care what the source of those ads are. That's quite serious. Let me ask you about that. I'm interested in your take on that, because right now on Facebook, on YouTube, on, on Twitter, is a false Trump campaign ad that is running with known false things that it says about Joe Biden, et cetera. Facebook says they're following FCC law that applies to broadcasters. And frankly, there's no regulation for them and their ads. They're not a broadcaster, but they say sort of we're following the law as we know it. Are they making the right call? This is why I think Congress is trying to act to create 
truth in advertising, I think this is extremely important in the age of social media because they have the information of who those persuadables are. And those um, various political organizations are targeting those groups. That's the insight from the 2016 election. It's a very vulnerable moment right now. Would you run these ads if you were running Facebook? No. No question about it. No question. Section 230. 26 consequential words that allow this to happen. Quote, no provider or user of interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. That is Section 230, the law, the code as it exists, is is what gives these platforms sort of the no consequence ability to run things and have no um, responsibility for what is being run. Um, if CNN were to run things that were just false or were to run videos of massacres, as we saw in, in New Zealand, right, in the, in, in the, and the massacres in different religious institutions, it, it, you couldn't do it. But big tech can do it. So have the days of the benefits of Section 230, uh, are, are, are those benefits now outweighed by the harm and the consequence? Section 230 must be abolished. It's the most dangerous law on the books today in the United States. It's creating the death of children all over the world. These platforms, it's well documented what's happening. And um, this this cannot continue. It's deeply affecting our society. And Section 230 is definitely one of the root causes of this. And I think finally... Many of the lawmakers are becoming aware of this. They're getting educated, Mm -hmm. and I hope that change is coming. Are you an activist CEO, Mark? Because you used to shudder when you heard that term used, someone who takes on social positions. Are you an activist CEO? I really don't like that title. (laughs) I talk about that in the book. You know, I, I don't view myself as an activist. I just view myself as someone who is trying to do the right thing, for my company and for myself. I told you the story how at Oracle I felt I was two people. I had to be one person yes. over here and one person over here. Yes. I've talked to a lot of my friends, especially a lot of my CEO friends, who feel the same way, that they have to be only about the shareholders and only about money, or they're holding money at one level over here. But over here, their values and their spirituality and their religious context is over here, but they have a hard time bringing them together, which is what needs to happen. Well, they're scared. Aren't, aren't a lot of them scared? Fear is what prevents it. And when they get over that fear and if they can bring that together, those values can elevate and then they can also start to do the right things. And you see that now, actually. There's a lot of good examples in business. Walmart, guns. This is a great example where business has to take responsibility for what's happening with certain types of assault weapons. You just made a move on guns as well. It was not publicized, but the news got out that Salesforce banned businesses that sell military-style assault rifles from using your CRM platform. How did you come to that decision? Because no doubt you have some employees who applaud that and some employees who do not like to see that. This is one of many complex decisions that I am now confronted with as a tech CEO. So what I have put in place is the Office of Ethical and Humane Use in my company, run by a phenomenal ethics team. And this phenomenal's ethics team, their job is to look at every difficult decision that we are looking at as a company and to make an independent decision. I'm not involved in it. So they made this call? 
they made this call with all groups, employee groups, yep. customers, shareholders, um, and as well as outside organizations, all types of organizations are part of the discussion. And then they basically decided there were certain things that were being sold on our commerce cloud that were inappropriate. And they ruled against that. And now we see a lot of organizations that say, wow, maybe we shouldn't be selling military weapons on our platform as well. Well, this decision to form this, this office, if you will, and essentially a chief ethics officer of sorts, came after uh, you were confronted with some really hard choices, a lot of bad press over the work that Salesforce does with ICE and with uh, Customs and Border Protection. You got this letter, 900 Salesforce employees signed it, and they were very upset that this was one of Salesforce's customers. This is around the time of family separation, the president's zero tolerance policy. When you read that letter, what did you think? The, I, I feel exactly like what I just said, which is that this is a time where tech CEOs are really confronted with some extremely difficult situations. That one that you just articulated is definitely one of them. You can imagine being in my chair, getting a letter exactly like that. And it was at that moment yeah. that I said, wow, I don't know what the right thing to do is. You have one group over here saying this is the right thing. You have another group saying this is the right thing. So then what is the right thing to do? That's why I created the Office of Ethical and Humane Use, so that I had a way of actual experts who can really look at how our products are used. You know, I fully agree. Companies cannot wash their hands of how customers use their products. It's not possible anymore. By the way, that's connected to Section 230, you know, that you just discussed. Well, that is very much how I felt, and that's why I created the Office of Ethical and humane use. And the decision was made by them, and I assume in part by you as the CEO, to maintain the work you do with, with CBP um, and to keep up that contract. Did you think of ending it, Mark? Did you think of, of, of walking away, not only because of the bad publicity, but because of what you heard from those hundred, almost 1,000 employees? Well, all of us wanted to get educated. We needed to understand exactly how is our product being used, and then we needed to have the filter of, is it ethical? And by the way, all of those employees basically ended up agreeing that this was the right motion. We had to look at how are we actually using our product. They participated in the evaluation. We're not just going along and saying, we're absolutely gonna support this group or, or that group. Mm -hmm. We're doing things the right, what we think is the right way. And also we were trying to model for other tech companies how they can do it as well. Can you take me back to 2015? This is when I first interviewed you. I remember calling, like cold calling your office and saying, I want to talk to Mark Benioff because of what he's doing and saying about Indiana and Governor, uh, but then, then Governor Mike Pence. So it's March 2015. The head of your, of Salesforce's marketing cloud division calls you from Indiana about what was deemed then the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And he told you, quote, our employees are afraid. And then he said to you, what are you going to do about it? And you thought, what am I going to do about it? Like, and then what did you do? What I've told my employees is that they're a key stakeholder in running the company and that we're running this on stakeholder theory. So they have the permission to call me and they did. We're the largest tech employer in Indiana and Indianapolis. And we got a phone call from quite a few of them, and they said, 
we're being discriminated by the government. There was a law that just got signed mm -hmm. that is against the LGBTQ community. And I said, well, obviously that's not true. You know, I'm, now I'm in San Francisco, the home of the summer of love, the home of gay rights. You know, I was born on Divisadero Street. You know, this is not something in my reality, but they were right. And I said, wow, you know, we're gonna have to do something about it. And so I called Mike Pence, who I knew, and I said, we're gonna either have to de-invest or you're going to have to make some changes to the law. And I mean, I think he went further than that. You talked about a rolling thunder of economic consequences, Governor. Well, we were able to negotiate with him very successfully, and within two weeks, the law was changed. People, some people called you a corporate bully, Mark, and they thought you went too far. Well, I don't think that that's true. I think that I'm only advocating on behalf of my employees. And that I have to be consistent in how I'm running the company, which is through this one simple idea. Mm. And that's why I wrote the book, to give other CEOs a knowledge of how to be trailblazers themselves. And that's why I, I think business can be the greatest platform for change. But if our employees are calling us and saying, hey, we need to take an action yep. either here on one issue, like you mm -hmm. mentioned before, or here on another issue, or a third issue, like several of the issues have been employee-driven, then I need to be able to act on that for, on their behalf. I'm just representing them. So let me read you some criticism and see what you have to say back. Okay. This comes from um, one of your critics at the Free Enterprise Project. They're a shareholder activist group, conservative bent. Quote, he's using the economic power of Salesforce to advance his cultural position and advance his worldview with impunity. He is literally giving away money to advance his social agenda. Why do you think they're wrong? They're ignorant, actually. They don't understand stakeholder theory or what I'm doing. They haven't read the book. They hear, their total position is the only thing that business should do is make money and nothing else. Their position is the Milton Friedman position. They're Friedmanism people. The business of business is business. That's all you should do. You should be purely making money. Don't do anything else. To them, I would say, that might have been great 50 years ago, but not in the world that we live in today. And I can't build a great company and deliver shareholder value with that approach. More from my conversation with Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benioff after the break. You are building this company at a time when our children, certainly mine, one in three future is going to look so radically different because of artificial intelligence. The World Economic Forum found more than 50% of workers are going to be, need to be reskilled significantly by 2020. Brookings says 80 million Americans are going to likely lose their job because of automation by 2030. This is all contributing to inequality. And you call AI a human right, a new human right. So how do we ensure that it's a right that people hold and maintain and that they don't just get cut out of this wealth? AI is the new human right because it's going to make you healthier, it's going to make you smarter, it's going to make you richer, and if you have it, you're going to have those things, and if you don't, you're not. And when we walk into the United Nations, you know how that has a list mm -hmm. of the human rights? One of them is going to be artificial intelligence. And that will be true whether you're a large company like the United States or a small country, or it could be true for me or you, but we're all going to need equal access to artificial intelligence. 
And that's also why we've created a brand new service called Trailhead, where we're reskilling millions of workers all over the world mm -hmm. to give them knowledge of how to use artificial intelligence. This is so important that we reskill for right. the fourth industrial revolution. So who should do it? Because you've called this, Mark, the tallest mountain we've ever tried to scale. Gavin Newsom, who I know is a friend of yours, a former California governor, has talked about an empathy gap in technology. Who do you think is responsible for that reskilling? Is it the government? Is it taxpayer-funded government programs? Is it companies that need to spend more of their money retraining not only their workers but outside workers? Like, who does it fall on? Because I know that if we don't do this, too many people are going to be left behind. I choose all of the above. <laughs> I think it's my responsibility and government. I think the problem is that on big complex issues like this or public schools yeah. or all the things that we've talked about in this interview, when we say it's the government's responsibility, it's business's responsibility, it's the NGO's responsibility, that's when things implode. We're one integrated society. We're all working together. And when it comes to retraining and reskilling workers, we have to be part of that. That's why we've created trailhead.com. The government needs to be part of that. That's why they're creating programs for workforce Should development as well. Should companies be forced, compelled? It's not a very capitalist thing to say, but you say we need a new capitalism. So should, gov should companies that don't want to voluntarily do this and spend money on this be compelled, forced by the government to do it? I think that stakeholder-led businesses is the way of the future, and it's all companies should be encouraged to move in that direction. And to that point, I said the SEC should ask companies to not only publish their shareholder returns, mm -hmm. but publish their stakeholder returns. That's really my core message, hmm. right, is that you can do both. This is, it's not a, it's, it's, it's a false choice when we say, is it about shareholders or stakeholders? It's neither, it's about both. It's, an, it's the power of and. No, not either or. It's the power right. of and. And we can do it. Business is the greatest platform for change. We have the ability today to rise everybody up. Mm -hmm. We can retrain people. We can take care of those who are less fortunate as well. There's more than enough wealth and prosperity and abundance for everybody. We just have to make that decision. And will, and will we? I'd like to just spend a few moments, if we could, talking about China, because Salesforce has made an entry into China. Your goal is to double revenue by 2023. To do that, you've got to be in a huge market, the Chinese market. As someone who is so focused on human rights as you are as a leader, do you have reservations working in that market? Well, we have a partner uh, Alibaba. there, Alibaba. We don't have any employees in China. Uh, our approach has been to embrace all stakeholders, to engage in a multi-stakeholder dialogue. That's the most important thing for us. Wherever we do business, Wherever we are operating, we are always engaged in a multi-stakeholder dialogue and we are always acting with our values first. This is the fundamental core of how we operate. Because obviously there are concerns about how ethnic minorities in China are being treated, the, the, the Muslim, uh, Uyghur population, for example, and Salesforce's data and processing and storing customer data on the platforms there. China's cybersecurity law means that that data has to be stored within Chinese borders. So I guess I'm getting to the fundamental question of how do you wrestle with decisions like that to do business in China? I know you don't have employees there, but also face the reality of the way that the Chinese government operates. Oh, well, it's exactly as I mentioned before. 
all of this gets screened through our Office of Ethical and Humane Use. That is, you know, our product can be used in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different countries, by a lot of different companies and individuals. Our Office of Ethical and Humane Use, their job is to look at every single use case. So they're case. looking at the China business. And how it's being used. Well, how, how do we use it? That's the most important thing. And you can't take broad brush strokes against any one group or country or people. You have to have a multi-stakeholder dialogue. This, by the way, that's the core of how I run the business. Is and, and in every discussion we've had so far, that is what I've done. Is the Chinese government a customer, contractor with Salesforce at this point? We don't have any relationships with the Chinese government. One of the places you've tread very carefully, your chief scientist has talked about this, is facial recognition. Um, that you guys have not, as far as I understand it, you're not in that business. There are a lot of concerns about bias and facial recognition, and big tech seems to be divided over it right now, right? Google is taking a more cautionary approach. You guys, I don't think, have any business in it at this point. And then Amazon and some others are on the other side. What do you think about that? I think about that this is really where the world is moving. We know we're moving into extremely advanced artificial intelligence. In terms of facial recognition technology, in one of my core philanthropy efforts, which is ocean health, we have a drone currently flying over Santa Barbara. A few weeks ago, that drone spotted a great white shark using that same facial recognition technology and also noted through that same technology that there was a surf camp with a bunch of kids on the beach. And the, the shark was getting closer and closer and closer to the surf camp. The AI notified the beach to get the kids out of the water. So there is a very interesting message here. Technology is never good or bad. It's what you do with the technology that matters. And that is why values bring value. It all gets connected back to the values. In that case, that facial recognition technology, which was able to recognize the shark in the water, right. is doing the right thing. But I'm sure that there's many examples where you might say that this is not ethical. That's why these things have to be governed in exactly how I'm describing through ethical use. And is that Salesforce's API? Is it your That's all Salesforce's technology. technology. So you are developing facial recognition We technology. have the most advanced artificial intelligence in the world called Salesforce Einstein, uh, developed by the head of Salesforce Research. You know, with, you know, we do work at Stanford University, and that's one example. We have a lot of examples where we're using AI. We have today billions of predictions through AI that are happening for our customers all over the world. We haven't talked about our business at all in the interview, but we, you know, we help companies get connected more deeply together, and AI is a major part of how that is done. But it has to be done through an ethical lens. And, on, and, and we've talked about Einstein a, a lot in the past, and it's a huge part of your business. I mean, you talk about how it can tell you how the business is doing increasingly. Is facial recognition something that you believe Salesforce and every big tech company needs to tread very carefully on? Ethics is something that every tech company has to tread very carefully on. If you narrow it, cast it down mm -hmm. to technology or facial recognition, you are going way too low on the mm -hmm. stack. Okay? You're way down here. I'm way up here. It's connected, though. Okay? But if you're going to isolate things, mm -hmm. well, we've looked at that. It's okay. Right. But over here, we're doing this. No. You're, what is your culture? 
What is your value system in your company? Tell us what your values are. Tell us who your stakeholders are. Tell us how you operate your business. Tell us how you use your business as a platform for change. Mm -hmm. Tell us how the technology that you're creating is improving the state of the world. Don't tell me about one little thing that you did, which is a few bits and bytes, and how you're maybe saying, oh, we won't use it for this one use case. Show me the big picture. That's where, I, that's where I'm living. On the business, what is the biggest transformational change we should expect from Salesforce? I just talked about your double revenue goal. Yes. But in, in the near term, by 2023. What is the most well, that's good, by the way. That's very important. I mean, we will do about $16.9 billion to $17 billion this year. You know, that, that is approximate, you know, guidance that we've given. And we're going to be uh, going to $28 billion by fiscal year 23. That's public guidance that we have given. That growth, you know, gives us the opportunity to make changes that are not everything that we want right now, mm -hmm. to add value, to build more technology, and to strengthen our core values. When we look at trust, when we look at customer success, when we look at innovation, when we look at equality, and when we look at sustainability on our planet, we want all of those things to move forward. And as we grow, we want to improve the state of the world with that growth. Um, on human rights and vocalizing them, Hong Kong and the protests, you saw you're going to have Adam Silver at your tech summit, or your health summit tomorrow. What is your view about what is happening now, the protesters in Hong Kong, as you enter the Chinese market? This is, you know, these are very complex issues, and we're, we've just gone through all of those issues. Yeah. And that's why having this multi-stakeholder dialogue is so important. We can't isolate one group or one government or one organization, or we are going to end up with all kinds of problems, and people are going to feel like their rights are being violated. It has to be an integrated, multi-stakeholder dialogue. That can bring tremendous value. By the way, that's why I go to the World Economic Forum you know, every year, because that's where you see world leaders having these dialogues and having these discussions, and where I have seen tremendous progress being made. And um, th by the way, it's a 1972 Klaus Schwab, who founded the World Economic Forum, really articulated stakeholder theory when he was at University of California, Berkeley. And it's through a lot of that thinking that we're able to kind of run our business so much better today. I think that your position on capitalism is going to be the leading theme. This is my prediction a few months out from Davos this year and discussion at Davos. Before we go, just a few questions about life leaders and leadership. You talk in the book about Steve Jobs and how lucky you were to meet him so early on in your career. 1984, he hires you as an intern. And you say he has the gift of seeing the world through many perspectives at once. What did he teach you? That gurus are not just in India, but they could be in <laughs> Silicon Valley. <laughs> and that's what I found when I showed up at Apple in 1984, when I was working there in, in 1985, when I saw him get fired, um, when I went to see him back in the headquarters uh, in 2001 and 2003, when he gave me critical advice to help Salesforce become what it is today, that gurus are all around us and that we need to be listening closely to everybody because wise words can come from people that you least expect and that's what I heard directly from Steve Jobs. Your wife, Lynn, you call her the core of your family. 
What has she taught you? She has taught me something extremely important, which is to listen much more deeply. Um, it's hard for a man. <laughs> and it's hard for a married hard for man. Me. It's hard for me. <laughs> it's hard for men. a married man. And um, so listening to her is, you know, really important. And it's listening, you know, and being part of family and being present in the family. This is, you know, really, I think, a challenge for every person like me. I'm sure that even you probably can relate to what that's like. You just told me your own personal stories. All the time. I I don't think I could do what you do, which is literally mail my phone and tablet and every device away and go on vacation unplugged for two weeks. I think it would behoove me to do that. You have to do that. By the way, that's one of the best things now that I have done. We are so addicted to these phones and the network. And what I've been doing, and sometimes it's even gotten me in trouble, I've written about that in the book, is I take all my technology, my phones, my iPads, everything, I put them in a big envelope, and I mail it to me for where I'm going two weeks, and I go on vacation. There is no way you can get me. I cannot um, read anything off the devices. Uh, My friend Tony Robbins has this great phrase. He says, you got to burn the boats. And that's basically, you know, what you're doing when you're mailing away all your technology because there's no way to authenticate into these networks because of the way two-factor authentication works. Right. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, I really need to get on Twitter. I really need to get on email. I really need to get on the phone. And then you realize, you know, I, the w- world always wasn't exactly like this. And so I end up, you know, being places and having experiences and... Ha- getting awareness around things because I'm not fully addicted in, in my technology. And in fact, my family always says that the best times that they have with me is those two weeks of course. when I'm, just you know. You. Not you and Twitter. And also, not isn't that what phone. it should be, right? Well, Which it is, It's just us, no technology. We've mailed everything away. And I even told my I have a co-CEO now, too, yes. which was one of the revelations I had on one of those trips, which was that that would really help me run the business. And I have a fantastic well, executive. Well, that I can't do it all. With me. I can't. Who can do it all? Who can do it all? A lot of leaders and, think they can well, do it Well, I know I can't. And so I have a great co-CEO. And recently, I finally convinced him in this week. He left his phone and iPads at home, and it was awesome. Well, now and, it's all on you, Mark. And I hope other people do that, too, because it's a really a great experience. Let me end on the 2020 election with a few caveats. I'm not going to ask you if you're going to run for office. The answer is no. You've <laughs> said that many no. times. I'm not going to ask you who you're endorsing because you're not going to tell me. Many people have asked. But I will ask you this. How consequential is the next presidential election? I think every presidential election is actually extremely important. I think right now we are at a moment where it's so important to look at what's going on in the world and the things that each one of us can do to make a difference and to Mm -hmm. improve the state of the world. Right now is a key moment to do just that. You know, we talked in this interview, every CEO we've said, or you, or everyone can adopt a public school. That, that's a great example. We can look at, you know, by 2050, we're going to have more plastic in the ocean than fish. Nobody wants a plastic ocean. We have got to get all these countries that are dumping plastic in the, in the ocean to stop doing that. We know we have way more carbon in our atmosphere than we want. Everybody agrees that there is, needs to be sequestered back into the planet. 
and we know how to do that. We can make that happen, but we need leadership around really life's most essential and important things so that, you know, as we move from the fourth industrial revolution, which is where we are now with all this AI and the mobility and the biosciences into the fifth industrial Mm -hmm. revolution, that the youth that are coming in now into the world who are experts in all this technology can use it to save the planet. And I hope that whoever the president is going to be in the future and future presidents will really look at that as core values that, you know, we're all need to be focused on improving the state of the world and using all these amazing technologies because you, to do it. Because you write in the book, I think a lot of people think you're this liberal, liberal, always been liberal guy. But you talk about being independent and that you were at one point a Republican. You've held fundraisers in the past for Hillary Clinton. You've gone to the White House to speak to the president. I worked in the Bush White House also. There. So I don't know when the last time is you spoke to the president, but what is your single most important piece of advice for him today? I I would say the most important thing is what we've been talking about here, which is that business is the greatest platform for change, that our businesses need to take responsibility for all stakeholders Mm -hmm. and need to be held accountable for being part of the solution and not be a problem a problem and that they need to be held responsible for improving it the government should not be focused on that they're the only ones we should not say that they have to be the ones who do all the work Mm -hmm. we can all do the work together so we'll end on two fun questions this is one is a game that I play with friends when we're at dinner and my husband and that is if you weren't doing this Okay, and you can't say, oh, I'd be doing the same job, I love it. If you weren't doing this and money were not a factor, Mark Benioff, what would you do? What would you be? I'd be 100% focusing on sequestering more carbon out of the environment. We have almost 1,000 gigatons of carbon in the environment that should not be there, and we need to get 200 gigatons of that carbon out of the environment as fast as possible. We know how to do that. And that's what I would be 100% focused on. And finally, this question that I ask everyone. You're a dad. What do you want your kids to say about you one day? That I practiced forgiveness. Mm. That forgiveness was a word that I was able to give myself and to them, to others. That forgiveness became a core part of who I was and who, who others around me became and that through that forgiveness I was able to bring more love into the world and that is the most important thing to me. Mark, thank you for your time. Congratulations on Trailblazer. It's a fascinating read. I didn't even get to all these great stories about Toyota and all of this so people should read it and learn. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from. So leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 